Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 31. On your insert, I only have half of the passage. It's a longer passage as we have seen to be the case walking through Genesis. Now, I like to read these longer sections because not only is the preaching of the Word of God a way that God grows our faith, but also just the, the, I won't say the mere reading of the Word of God, that's not what I mean, but the plain reading of God's Word in and of itself by the Spirit's aid will grow your faith. So it's never a bad thing even to listen to long sections of Scripture read or when we read them ourselves. But certainly in public like this, to be able to read the Word of God aloud and to acknowledge it comes from Him, we can trust it. This is a powerful thing in the life of the church and in each believer. As we approach Genesis 31, it's important to keep the big picture in mind. Genesis set in the context of God bringing Christ. This is what He promises to do in Genesis 3. He will send a seed from the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And so really the Old Testament is about God fulfilling that promise to bring Messiah. Genesis gives us the foundations of how exactly that will look, and that will happen by calling by God's grace, undeserved on the part of the recipient, but calling Abraham and promising him to make him a great nation, to protect him, to bless him, to be a blessing to the nations. And we come to realize that the blessing to the nations will come through that second Adam who comes, Jesus. Then Isaac, he receives the same promises. They're reassured, or the covenant is renewed with him. And now we come to Jacob. You can tell it's not because these guys are faithful. It's because God's faithful to keep his promises. And Genesis continually uh, reinforces that God is going to finish his work of bringing Christ for the salvation of his people. That's what unfolds throughout the course of the Old Testament. Eventually, Israel will come from Jacob, and then from Israel will come Messiah. Jacob, the father of these 12 sons, 11 have been born so far to the point we find ourselves this morning. You remember where we left off. Jacob had served for 14 years, Laban, in order to marry Rachel and Leah. He went to Laban and said, it's time for me to go out on my own. Uh, But Laban wasn't too interested, and Laban also understood that he had received his own prosperity because of Jacob under his household. He also knew that Jacob didn't have anything that he owned. Where is he going to go with nothing? So they struck a deal that he would pay wages to Jacob, and Jacob said, just give me cattle or uh, livestock that I can grow my own flocks so that I can start to have my own wealth and my own prosperity. And of course, Laban said, sure, strikes a deal, thinks he's cheating Jacob. Jacob thinks he's cheating Laban. Bottom line, God's in control. And in six years, God exponentially multiplies the flocks of Jacob to the point where he is formidable. Not more formidable than Laban with his men and his stuff, but he can now move back the 300 miles to Canaan with some ability. He now had the means to do it. Now, of course, Jacob is still constantly this struggle between who he is as a man of faith and who he was as a man of manipulation. Of course, he had already met his match in Laban, but he didn't want to face Laban before heading off, even though he had every right to leave and he had every reason to believe God would keep him safe if he just simply announced to Laban, we're leaving now to go back to my father's house, to my own home. Instead, kind of in a sneaky fashion under the cover of night, without any opportunity for the daughters to say goodbye to their father or the grandchildren to say goodbye to their grandfather, Jacob leaves, flees in essence. Now we pick up in that story, God's word, 
Genesis 31, verse 22, Laban has just found out that Jacob has taken off. Here as I read. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to harm you. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. He went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but did not find them. She said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot arise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me. In the cold by night, in my sleep fled from my eyes." These twenty years I have been in your house. I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction in the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they all took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Gilead. Laban said, 
This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mitzpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat, drink, eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, we love your word, the heavenliness of its content, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style and the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give you glory. And we love the full discovery that it makes of the only way of our salvation through Christ, and also the many other incomparable excellencies we find when we read the Bible. Guide us now in the study of this concluding segment of Jacob's journey to his promised home. I pray this through Christ. Amen. Jacob had the legal right to do exactly what he was doing. He didn't do it the right way, however. He should have done it the honorable, respectable way. It's true. He spent 14 years, 14 years of servitude for Rachel and Leah. Try to gather how long we're talking about. 14 full years in total service, not owning a thing. Then, on top of the 14 years, he worked for another six years to gain flocks so that he would have the wherewithal, the stability financially, and in a sense of safety to have enough people to then move as a caravan 300 miles to the east. 20 years now have gone by in his life. 20 years. It's legal for him and it's right for him to want to go back. Try to think of 20 years in your own life and how much has happened. What's happened in that span? Almost 20 years ago, I baptized Mariah Staples. I remember her baptism in particular because of her name. Their parents gave her that name to tie us to uh, the time that Abraham was to sacrifice Isaac. That's 20 years ago. Last week, I officiated her wedding ceremony. Now, I don't look that old, but 20 years have gone by pretty rapidly. You know, over 20 years ago, our third son was born, the relative runt of the litter. No longer. He's a sophomore in college, and there's never been a Felice that sniffed 5'10", let alone 6'2". 20 years have done a lot over this time to see it unfold, for sure. I can think of so many ways in which unfathomable amounts of things happen in 20 years. In 20 years, Jacob served Laban and now he's legally free to go. And instead of going in an honorable or respectful way, not even giving Laban the dessert, maybe he doesn't deserve it, but it'd still be the right thing to do to say goodbye to his daughters, to say goodbye to his grandchildren. Instead, he bails out of there because he's scared of him. He's not promising at that moment or, or counting on the promises or depending on the promises of God's protection. 
He just wants to get out of there. He knows God told him to go back home, so I'm going to go back home. The choice of how he does this leads to what could have been a deadly confrontation. In fact, something we will be challenged with when we see this tense situation brew, one that we can just imagine coming, troubling circumstances that we have, unpleasant circumstances, these are often used by God in the life of his children to show his hand of providence to you. When you go through a difficulty and come through it, you can look back at it and put together some of the things you learned about yourself and about God. It's really a grace to us as he leads us through these things. That's what troubling circumstances do. They also serve to then build our faith. So when the next trial comes, we're a little sturdier and we're a little more ready for it. And then finally, when he puts his children through trials, through difficulties, the way he helps them persevere through it or be changed as a result of it is actually a testimony to the world around, to us immediately, and then even people outside the church can recognize how is it that that person could be upheld through that difficulty. It was the hand of God's providence leading and providing for them. Let's see how that unfolds here in the episode before us. I want you to look first at how God's providence, his hand of providence, is once again shown in the life of Jacob, the way he protects Jacob, even beyond Jacob's understanding. This troubling episode provides a show of God's providence. Verse 22, Laban finds out that Jacob fled. Verse 23, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued. He has murderous intents. There's no question. We can tell by what unfolds here. He wants to do Jacob major harm. He's angry. He's driven by his anger. And he pursues him with basically a, a military, a small militia to go find him. Verse 24, But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream. Here's God's providence at work. God providentially intervening in a way that Jacob did not know until later. He says to him in the dream, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. In other words, do not mess with Jacob. Remember the promises of God to Abraham? I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. This is true for the children of God. You can receive no ultimate harm because of God's hand upon you. Laban was angry. He intended to harm Jacob. But yet, the protection of God was upon Jacob. This is God's providence protecting, working things to protect and safeguard Jacob for God's promised purposes. You know, we see this one other time. We're unbeknownst to the child of God. God goes to the enemy, the one who's going to do harm, and speaks a word. You remember with Abimelech when the second time that Abraham lied about Sarah being his sister instead of his wife? Remember what happened to Abimelech? Genesis 20. Abraham sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. The covenant promise to bless those who bless and curse those who curse on full display. When God elects a people for himself, he goes with them. He protects in ways that we cannot even imagine. God has protected you in ways you know, but he has protected you in far more ways that you do not know on a regular basis. We'll be in awe when we come to know all the ways God averts things 
for your good in his glory. God is protecting each of you in ways you cannot fathom. Only partial awareness is ours. Even difficult circumstances are a part of God's care for you because he protects you in the ultimate sense. Verse 25, Laban overtook Jacob. Jacob had already pitched his tent in the hill country. Laban pitched his, basically his military campaign, if you will, in the hill country of Gilead. His intentions are revealed. He says in verse 26, what have you done that you've tricked me? Now, this is, this is a height of irony, right? Laban saying to Jacob, how have you tricked me? They've been tricking each other ever since they met. And so far, Laban has the upper hand. But yet he says to Jacob, how have you tricked me? Why did you flee secretly, verse 27, and trick me and not tell me? Because if you would have just told me, Jacob, we would have held up everything. We would have had a huge feast. We would have had bands. We would have had a tent. We would have had food. We would have had it all. But instead, you denied me that right to have this huge party as you guys would leave. We want to celebrate what God's doing, your God's doing in your life. And you didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren goodbye. And this is vintage Laban working this scene in this situation. It is in my power to harm you, he says in verse 29. But the God of your father spoke to me last night. Be careful not to say anything to Jacob. Even though Jacob is left in a wrong way, and I'm sure he he knew that. Again, through Laban, he is assured of God's providential protective care. Laban reveals the only reason he wasn't killing Jacob is because of God's restraint. It's important to note here, no ultimate harm comes to anyone who is in God's care. But there will be an earthly day that we go home to him. And it's exactly as God appoints it. Nobody steals that moment from God. He's in control of even that for you. Jacob had answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Even professing a lack of faith, he's honest and saying to Laban why he left like he left. But this is what is interesting for sure. In verse 30, we find one of the driving motives in Laban's life related to these household gods. It's one thing that you went away to go back to your father's in verse 30, but why did you steal my gods? He doesn't know that Rachel has taken them. Now, this is interesting. Jacob, starting in verse 32, gives one of the most cleared conscience comments we ever read from Jacob. Like most of the time when he says stuff, he must think in his mind that he's done a bunch of things to deserve whatever it is. But here he thinks he's fully in the right, and he is from what he knows. But he doesn't know that Rachel has actually stole these little idols of Laban's. So here again, God's providence is at work even more than Jacob knows. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Jacob goes so far as to say, I will execute someone who's stolen those gods, your gods. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out what I have, that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. This is a picture of all of our lives. We think we know how God providentially protects, but as I mentioned, and with a new dimension here, he protects even more than you know. The things you don't know that he's doing on a constant, regular basis. I like what Rayburn says about this, the comprehensive oversight that God has of our lives. Uh, this knowledge is high above us. We cannot see what God has done for us until he has done it, and even then we don't fully realize all he has done. 
what he has given or how he has cared for us. People will often say, I just know the Lord provided for me. And you may be right. You may be really sure. He provided for me more than that, though. Even more than you think. In his classic work, The Mystery of Providence, the Puritan John Flavel said, It is the duty of the saints, especially in times of straits, to reflect upon the performances of providence for them in all the states and through all the stages of their lives, to constantly reflect on God's providence and his hand of providence upon us. And always when you do so, know it's still even more than you know. Our confession of faith describes providence. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures' actions and things from the greatest even to the least by his most holy and wise counsel. And then he offers this addition for Christians. He says, the divine Satan, Westminster Confession, chapter 5, as the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof. God exercises a protective providence over his children. This is revealed in the life of Jacob. As Tweedale says, the doctrine of providence reminds us that while the precise purposes of God may be veiled from our sight, we can still draw comfort from knowing that whatever befalls us comes from God's good and wise plan for our lives. But let's continue with the narrative because we learn more. In addition to a demonstration of God's providence through Jacob, we also observe actions that are based on the flesh compared to faith. Laban epitomizes one who acts according to the carnal mind the worldly mind with worldly concerns, and his whole life is wrapped up into it, even if he assumes some deity with these household gods that he has. Whereas you have Jacob, who for all his flaws had been operating primarily in a fleshly, carnal way, but now through God's providence in teaching him, he starts to exhibit faith, and he displays it by what he says is true about God in the presence of many witnesses and through his life's actions. Laban, this man of worldliness. Notice what he says again in verse 30 when he realizes or when he confronts Jacob about what he is missing. You have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. Fair enough. But why did you take my idols with you? Why did you steal my gods? Now, to Laban. We don't know for sure the function of these gods, these household gods. We think of them as small trinkets of some sort, enough that Rachel could fit in a bag and sit on them. Likely, they were little divination tools. They could have been idols of people, idols of of animals. Things that he had some faith in, Laban, um, would keep stability for him, keep security for his household. Um, He was superstitious about it, if not religious about it. And having those stolen made him feel insecure. Why would you take that secure? What was the reason for you doing this? Now, I want you to notice something about Laban's God compared to Jacob's God. Laban's God could be stolen. That's not true of the God of Jacob. But Laban doesn't catch this irony, nor does anybody who doesn't worship the true God, because they're so wrapped up in their own idolatry that they don't even recognize the utter ridiculousness of where their trust lies. That's the flesh versus faith. Some way he trusted them to keep him safe, and now they were gone. Now, how much did he want to find them? Look at the scene. Laban doesn't send a servant to go find him. He himself goes into these tents. Verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, and then to the tent of the two female servants. You could just see him ransacking everything they have. But he didn't find them. 
And then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Now it may be that Rachel was just simply doing this despite her father who loved those idols more than her. It could be she was holding on to them for some kind of proof later when Laban died that she should get some inheritance. She's part of his family. We don't know for certain, probably not for religious purposes, and how shocked would Laban be to find out that his sweet Rachel, who learned everything she knows from him, stole the household gods. It goes on. Laban felt all around Rachel's tent but did not find them. And then she said to him, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household god. She tricks her father. Jacob was out sneaked by Laban a few times, but now Laban is out sneaked by his own daughter. Now, what we have building up in this passage, in this story, I hope you feel the tension that comes in verse 36. It's a tension that has been building for, for, for 20 years. Now, try to picture this, for those of you old enough to remember. How many of you remember Popeye the Sailor Man? Now, I know most of our generation, the current age, would not let our children see Popeye. He's far too chivalrous, far too manly most of the time. So you're going to have to go to YouTube to find this, and you should, because we need more of Popeye. At any rate, Popeye, fictional character, created in 1929, comic strip, then it went into cartoons, and then eventually there was a full, alive movie in 1980 with Robin Williams. I remember it like yesterday. I saw it a bunch of times when I was 10 years old. The basic flow of every Popeye episode was a buildup of tension. This poor, little, polite sailor, Popeye, was trying to impress his beloved girlfriend, Olive Oil, or the girl he was trying to impress and win her love, And so he was polite and nice and everything you'd like about a nice, kind person. But then big, bad, nasty Bluto would come in and beat down Popeye. So for as long as the episode would go, in every episode, he would work Popeye over. Even though you've seen it 30 times, you still felt the tension and felt bad for what was happening to Popeye. How could he be so mistreated by this big bully? And then at some key point, when the tension was the highest and Popeye was down and out, someone gave him some spinach. I can't imagine spinach does this, but I think they're trying to sell spinach. I don't know. They give him spinach, and all of a sudden, the power goes through his esophagus, into his arms, into his biceps, his enlarged forearms, and everything about Popeye becomes unlike what he was before, and he unleashes all this tension, and he takes out Bluto and the whole room and anyone else who gets in his way. That's what we got going right here in verse 36, is Jacob, after 20 years of built tension with Laban, He could stand all he could stand, and he could not stand anymore. Verse 36, then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. This is Moses summarizing what Jacob said. I would imagine there's probably more to it. This is his summary. It was a berating is what happens here. What is my offense, Jacob says? What's my sin that you so hotly pursued me? You look for everything. You got no reason to tell me now why are you doing all this? You felt through all my goods. What have you found of, my, of your household goods? Said whatever you find before my kinsmen, that they can see and decide between us. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes, your female goats have not miscarried. I've taken care of all of it. I've not eaten the rams of your flocks. I've stolen nothing from you. What was torn by wild beasts, I didn't charge to you. I just ate the loss myself. I bore the loss myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen 
by day or stolen by night. There I was in the heat of the day, and it's consuming me, but I'm watching your flocks. It's cold. I can't even sleep. It's so cold, but I'm tending your, your sheep. These 20 years I've been in your house. I've served you 14 for your daughters and six more for flocks. And you have changed my wage 10 times. Now, verse 42 is the key verse of the whole section we're looking at. It's a key verse that translates through the ages when you think about what he's saying. Jacob, who is largely a man of flesh most of his life, has come to realize something all important, and it took all of this to get him to that point. May all of us be a little less stubborn when we go through these hard times to come to this point in verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac, had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. Do you see the profession of faith? It's not my wiliness, my stratagem, or my manipulating, or my plans, or my sneaking, or my trickery. It's not my brilliance or my intelligence. It's only because the God of my Father protected me. It was on my side. That's, that's only success anyone ever has. It's because of that. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. You see flesh versus faith on clear display with Jacob's statement here in this new perspective that is revealed. God grows your trust in him through the circumstances you go through. Even when we demonstrate weakness in faith, when those circumstances come upon us, they actually serve those instances, and they're even our weakness, to bolster our faith when he gets us through it. We are all an admixture of belief and unbelief. It only takes a little bit of faith in a great big Savior to save us. But we've set about the building of that faith so we're not so shaky, so we're not so unstable. But even when we are, God's promise adheres to us. Ask yourself this question. Do you trust God more or less after you go through a severe trial? Now, I don't mean you would want to go back and do the trial over. It's fair to say you wouldn't. But I'll bet you not many of you would look back at the most severe trial you've dealt with and say, I would not have that in my life or I would not be who I am now by faith. This is the way that God normally grows us, is taking us through difficulty and trial, individually, collectively, so that we might find our refuge in Him. And the last point is on display by this public covenant that Laban calls Jacob to. You see, what God does by these difficult trials in our lives is that He shows His hand of providence He also builds our faith. Then he also displays something to a watching world. Sometimes it might just be in the community of faith so we can gain encouragement through seeing a brother or sister upheld this way or get through it this way. But also the world can see something different about the people of God as they endure difficulty and hardship. God's providence is on display. We see the fleshly thinking of Laban, the faith of Jacob, but now we'll see an unintended admission from Laban that's a true display that the message of there being one true God is clear to Laban and those who are with him. His actions in asking for this covenant inadvertently prove that Jacob's God is superior to his gods. In a trial of the gods, there is no contest. It's the true and living God over Laban's false God, who's ultimately himself. Laban's response to Jacob's verbal lashing is to surrender. It's a surrender with an attempt to steer clear of anything else that would come his way through Jacob. He sees God is real and God is with Jacob. So let's make this covenant so 
you can't attack me and I can't attack you. No, Jacob didn't need this covenant. This is not a divine covenant like the Abrahamic covenant. This is a covenant Laban wants in the vernacular of the day to save himself from this person that clearly has a God on his side. We know to be the true God. Laban doesn't admit that much, but says that this God is potent. This is the true God, we know. Look at verse 43. Laban said to Jacob, My daughters are my daughters, and my children are my children, and my flocks are my flocks, none of which is true any longer. But this is, shows you the mindset of Laban. And all that you see is mine, not true either. But what can I do this day for my daughters or for their children? He realizes that God has done something here to protect Jacob and move these things along that he cannot stop. He opposes what God says about it because these are all mine, but I can see they're being taken. You see the, mind, the unbelieving mindset of Laban on the one hand, but the acknowledgement that the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, is true. Come, verse 44, let's make a covenant, an agreement, a pact, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. So the stone is going to be a sign of that covenant. All the elements of a covenant are here. You have an oath, you have an audience with witnesses, you have a sign. They even have a meal afterwards. So Jacob took a stone, set it as a pillar, and Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather more stones. They took up stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it by an Aramaic or a Syriac name, Jagar Sahadutha. Jacob called it something Hebrew, Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. And you'll notice that he says, the covenant is between you and me, and now the heap is between you and me. That's something about the way the signs go with the covenant, where they're saying almost like they're one and the same. These rocks will say, or these rocks are, this remembrance about what's been said here today. This is the nature of covenants in the ancient Near East. That sign was very powerful. Therefore, he named it Gelid and Mitzpah. Okay, Jacob, we'll use your terms. The Lord watched between you and me. Now notice something else he's acknowledging about the true God. This all has come to this point where Laban is saying, your God can see stuff even when we're not around. Your God is omniscient. Laban's God, he claims no such thing. In fact, he can't find them right now because they're hidden. But the real God, Laban knows something about. The Lord watch between you and me, and when we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness. The true and living God is omniscient. And Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and this pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap, this pillar to me. This public display of the true God's power. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. He knows these, this, is, this is real. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Jacob makes a commitment in response, and he knows as a person now of faith that he's making it in God's hearing. So he offers a sacrifice, verse 54, in the hill country, and then he calls his kinsmen to eat bread. He memorializes it, if you will, to be sure that they all remember what's been decided here. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Jacob is protected, and Laban acknowledges the true God of Jacob. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home, and we don't hear again 
of Laban the Aramean. God displays himself by upholding his people. And Laban saw who the true God is. Now, to wrap this back around to the intro, why did God protect Jacob? I know you know, we know, it's not because Jacob deserved it. It's because God placed his hand of grace, undeserved favor, shown to someone who really deserves nothing but wrath, showed his grace upon Jacob. And the reason in the bigger picture why he protects Jacob is because he is going to keep true to himself. God will send the Messiah, and he must uphold Jacob, and from Jacob's 11 and then soon to be 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel would be born. From the 12 tribes of Israel, God would work things to pass over the centuries to the point of the Lord Jesus Christ himself coming. The whole reason for all of it. So Jacob bears protection from God because of Christ. You follow? Because of the promise to bring Christ, Jacob is the beneficiary of what Christ will bring. Abraham was favored by God because of Jesus Christ. Isaac was favored by God because of Jesus Christ. Jacob now was enjoying the protective hand of God because of God's commitment to send Christ. We often talk about the covenants of the Bible. In ultimate reality, they're not between God and man. They're between God and God. God and Christ. And he keeps that covenant. And if you're in Christ, you gain the benefits of it all. That's what this means. This is what this is referring to. Who are the sons and daughters of Abraham today? Who are the covenant children? Who bears God's favor like Jacob bears his favor? Have you thought about that? I'm going to say, you do. I'm going to say the people of God are the church, the people who are in Christ. You bear the benefits like Jacob did because God loves Christ so much and you're united to him by faith. In Galatians, Paul's trying to make this exact point because people were hung up on whether you were, Israel, if you were Jewish or not. No, the Jewish nation set up Christ and did many other things in display so that people would be drawn to the gospel. It's not a matter of your ethnicity as to whether you're the sons and daughters of Abraham. There's something more to it. In fact, that's what Paul says in Galatians 3. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. He's talking to the church in Galatia. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ put on Christ. That's why when we do a baptism, there's a sign things signified. It means something deeper than that, not just a memorial. And then we say you're baptized into Christ, it symbolized it. You're into the church. Now you're part of the people of God. That's what it symbolizes. Then it says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean to say there's not differentiations in humanity. It's saying as it relates to being rightly related to God, it doesn't matter what social strata you're on or what gender you are, or what part of the world. It doesn't It all comes down to this. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So anyone who lays hold of Christ, believes in Christ, you are a covenant child. You are are the covenant people of God. And the promises that God made to Israel fulfilled in Christ are yours in Christ Jesus. So the same providential protection that was granted unto Jacob is yours, is mine. Verse 42 applies to all of us. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, whatever else. But it is on our side. The providence of God does, in general, reach to all creatures after a most special manner. It takes care of the church. 
disposes all things to the good thereof. Troubling circumstances are often used by God to show his hand of providence, to grow your faith, and to make a statement to the world. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, the story of Jacob is the story of your promise-keeping providence. You favored him and protected him, not because he was faithful to you, but because you are faithful to your promises. You promised to send a Savior, and Jacob was part of keeping that promise. Lord, the story of our life is the story of your protection also. And the protection that you give us, the favor that you show us, the grace you pour out on us is also because of Christ. O Lord, for any of your children who are in need of encouragement today, may this time spent in your word do its work of grace in their hearts. May their faith in you be strengthened. May their trust in your watch care be bolstered. May their belief in your salvation through Christ be assured. I pray this through Christ the Savior. Amen. Let's turn together to number five. Number five is based on Psalm 145, which is also the content of our call to worship. This is put 